best line of the entire movie. They're like walking behind Kat or something. One of them says, I know you can be overwhelmed and I know you can be underwhelmed, but can you ever just be whelmed? Bianca looks at Cassidy and goes, I think you can in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> for one hope you are doing phenomenal i'm your host jalen and welcome back to retrospection connection where we take a more critical look back at tv and movies that left their mark on us in a formative moment of our lives allow me to serve as your guide as we take a look back at today's chosen piece of media i'm not sure if anyone has noticed just yet but this is actually a very special episode in the retrospection connection canon that's because this is officially our 13th episode. Firstly, thank you so much to those of you that listen and engage with the material and have shared some of your thoughts and opinions about the show and the pieces of media that we talk about. It means a lot. The reason why this episode is so special, though, is because this is officially our 13th episode. That's right. RC is officially a teenager, and this is something that we must celebrate. To mark the occasion in style, I got my friend and future nurse girl boss, Emily, on the line with me to discuss another iconic piece of media that has something to do with teenagers, the 1999 classic film, 10 Things I Hate About You. If you love this movie like us, or if you haven't seen it, but enjoy movies that are 70% pure manipulation and a dash of cute romance shenanigans, you'll definitely want to keep listening. We've got a great episode for you, and it's yours to enjoy. Of course, follow Retrospection Connection on Instagram at Retrospection Connection and share some of your thoughts about 10 Things I Hate About You while you're at it. Why, hello there, everyone. I am joined by one of my writer dies, I have to say. Uh, one of the top nine contacts in my messages, if that says anything to you at all, um, and somebody that now that I think about it, it does go quite a ways back with me. I haven't lived all that many years of life, but that's neither here nor there. Um, this is somebody that I really care about and has been a part of this development process for this podcast. So it means a lot that they are here. But without further ado, I will allow this person to introduce themselves, speak a little bit about how we met, and also tell us something that they're reflecting on, as important or as trivial as they want it to be. I guess my name's Emily. I am proud to be Jalen's friend. <laughs> Jalen and I go way back. When did we first meet? Oh, I was a mentee to Jalen at school. Jalen was basically like our mentor. So they would like tell us all these things about like what we need to do to be like the best and greatest leaders. And it was, it was kind of silly, not gonna lie, like sometimes, but... <laughs> We became friends out of it, so I can't say it was a bad investment of my time, so I can't really complain. And then we ended up being co-workers. Yeah, just kind of went from there, and then we left school. <laughs> and now we're here. <laughs> Let's see. One thing that I've been reflecting on lately, I would say it would have to be, I mean, obviously, 
you know, being in your early 20s is a big change, a big life change. So I think a big thing that I've been reflecting on recently has been what I want out of life, which is obviously a very grandiose topic. And I'm sure everyone else is thinking about the same thing. No one's got it figured out. We're all just kind of winging it. But um, I think kind of just take it day by day. And I realize I can kind of do whatever I put my mind to. I know it sounds cliche, but if I have an idea, like, why not make it a reality? Oh, man, I, I totally agree. I, I've been talking about that with a few friends lately, actually. Just this idea of like having these ideas. Okay. Just the idea of like having these ideas. You get what I mean. Yeah. Having an idea and, and sort of like thinking, ruminating on it. And it's like, what's the reason why you're not acting on it? You have everything within your yourself to make things happen. And it's a really powerful feeling when you are like, I can actually do this. And I, I can mm -hmm. take it out of my brain and like actually put it into my life. And I, I'm glad that you're thinking about that. I think that's dope. And I, I also do want to comment on the way that we met. It was silly. And I, I love that you mentioned that because I feel like that's where some of my favorite connections have come from. When you can just like make light of the way that you came into each other's lives and wouldn't want to go back there, but I certainly am glad that I know you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so the, the best takeaway. <laughs> well, all right. I do like to ask my guests an introductory question, and I will ask you the same. How would you describe your relationship to popular culture and specifically popular media growing up? I would say that popular media played a significant role in my upbringing. It was a little different. I didn't have cable, you know, growing up. So it was always the VCRs. It was the Red Box. It was the Netflix. It was like the 12 channels we had on our TV. So it was a lot of PBS, a lot of Masterpiece Theater. I'm a proud Downton Abbey fan. I'll probably get roasted for that later by my friends. Oh. Wait, really quickly. So PBS, uh, first of all, mm -hmm. the fact that you were watching like the adult content on there is wild to me. I thought you were going to say like Fiber Chase or like Arthur or some shit. What was like your favorite kids piece of media from PBS? Oh, it'd have to be Arthur, hands down. I think that's like yeah. one of the cornerstones of my childhood is like watching Arthur every morning. We'd come down and like throw an Eggo in the toaster and <laughs> put a little butter on it. And then I'd like sit in front of the TV <laughs> waiting for Arthur to come on. And then after Arthur would always be Curious George or Clifford, the big red dog. So it would have to be like somewhere between those three. Those are staples. I think Arthur has managed to live on a lot longer mm -hmm. than our time watching the show just because of memes. And, and I'm so glad because I think it causes people to look back and be like, wait, that was actually a really good show. Like quality content for kids. Mr. Ratburn is gay. So I was like, yes. He's gay. <laughs> Me too. It's crazy. Yeah. Sorry. I interrupted you. Continue talking about popular culture growing up. Oh, yeah. I guess a lot of it was also books. There's a lot of books that I were kind of like staples. And I feel like they're also staples in terms of like popular culture, like there was the Magic Treehouse, 36 Clues, there was like the Found series, like the Mysterious Benedict Society. And then I think also music, pop music, Selena Gomez, Demi Lovato, Hilary Duff, like you name it, I listened to it. Well, I wanted to ask you, how do you feel like popular media growing up has shaped you into the person you are today? I think it's definitely 
you know, brought up some really good questions as a kid. And I think they're kind of like points of connection. You know, I we say this as like it's the podcast too, a little bit synonymous, but I think it like builds a sense of community. You know, like we talk about like our favorite pieces of media. We're on this podcast talking about our favorite pieces of media. And I think it like is built so many connections for me. And I think we're going to get into this later, actually. But it's kind of shaped my idea of, you know, this romance. And you and I have talked about this a lot, but like we're romantics. We love the fantasy. I think for me, like it's kind of shaped my idea of like what a relationship could look like, especially as like a queer person. And a lot of these movies are not necessarily catered to queer audiences. But there are like these little snippets of like things we take with us, like as we go along. And I think it's also taught me to be an adventure, to be free and like challenge, you know, other people. I think that's always been something that stood out for me. And especially like in the movie we're going to talk about. Oh, wow. I, I mean, you just got me very excited because of course I agree. Media is a means to connect and engage with people in a way that you otherwise wouldn't be able to, I'd say. I think it allows you to project onto something and and share that experience with someone else. It, it's something that lights me up, and specifically the context of romance in media, which is a focal point of the movie that we're talking about today, 10 Things I Hate About You. I completely share that same sort of appreciation for this type of media and it allowing me to see myself even in some tangential way as a part of a love story that's something that i think about a lot especially now in my early 20s and there's all these people looking at you now to be like oh are you going to be in a relationship or right. <laughs> what do you want to have for yourself long term and um, that is very daunting and intimidating and i feel like watching or engaging with romance media is a way for me to sort of have fun with that concept without feeling the immense pressure of diving headfirst into it myself. So I say all that to say, super duper excited to be talking about 10 Things I Hate About You. Not you specifically. I love you. You're great. Oh, wow. Uh, I knew you movie, always hated me. To be clear. Let that be known that Jalen <laughs> hates me and there are 10 things okay. that Jalen specifically hates about me. Okay. I see this conversation has taken a turn. This is good. <laughs> we should actually have this conversation now. <laughs> well, I want to ask you a ton of questions about this movie. But before we get into your particular relationship to the film, I do want to ask you about how you interpret like the basic premise of it and whether you would maybe add some details to it or whether you think it's fine as is. So the basic premise, set in 1999, a high school boy, Cameron, cannot date Bianca until her antisocial older sister, Kat, has a boyfriend. So Cameron must pay a mysterious boy, Patrick, to charm Kat. Very basic, as, as most of the synopsis, synopsi that I get for this uh, podcast. But I think that allows you to sort of figure out maybe what's missing here. So talk to me. Do you feel like this is a good summation of the film? What is what is going on here? I think it's really interesting that they focus on Cameron, you know, as like this like main protagonist, like in the synopsis you get online, because really Kat's the main character in my opinion. And maybe that's just because that's who I'm paying attention to, but it really does seem like the film is centered around her and Cameron's kind of a a side narrative and like yes i will agree like 
that is really the driving force and like the romance is like because they're being set up because Cameron wants to date her sister but Kat is really the main focal point of the movie and I think her storyline is the most in-depth you know we get this idea that like Cameron's okay the new kid he's a military brat like in the first couple scenes but for the majority of it, we're looking at like cat in class, cat with her friends, cat in the car, you know? So we're really getting an idea of like her life and they're really building up who she is. And they want us to kind of see deeper into, you know, getting to know her and like why she's like kind of this enigma. And, you know, that kind of gets into like the Shakespearean aspect of it because we kind of tie in, you know, the taming of the shrew and the shrew is her. She is the shrew. So like, mm-hmm. that's why she is our main focal point. Fully co-sign that. I think it is odd that the synopsis features Cameron as like the focal point that the whole story wraps around. And admittedly, I don't have too much experience with the work that this is adapted from, which, like you said, is Taming of the Shrew, a play from the 1500s by the William Shakespeare. Perhaps you've heard of him. But Cameron is perhaps like in the original adaptation or the original story, maybe is the main character. I'm truly not sure. But they definitely take a backseat in this interpretation of the story. And I think that goes a long way to modernizing it, making it more about the women and especially Kat in the story. Because I think from what I've heard about the original story, that is severely underrepresented. It's not really discussed how the girls of the story feel about all the manipulation and lying and the secrets that are going Mm -hmm. on behind the scenes to orchestrate all of this stuff. So we will absolutely get into that further in depth later. But You talked about Kat and how she's a central character, not only to the film itself, but also to you and and your interest in the film. So that leads me to my next question. Why 10 Things I Hate About You? Why is it this film that we're talking about on Retrospection Connection? Something that drew me to the film, and I think that's something that like has drawn me to like multiple films of the 90s, like it's kind of this like rebellious, like teenage female protagonist. Like I love you know, the stories that are centered around that and this idea that like she's, you know, defying the norms. And I think it was a newer thing. I think for the 80s and 90s, that was like kind of a common theme that we saw, you know, in Clueless, we had Miss Congeniality. So like those kind of like types of movies that we were kind of seeing more of like the lens turned on women. And I think that was one of the first movies that I really saw where it was both hilarious it was romantic. Like she still got what she wanted at the end. Like she didn't have to compromise to get love. And that was like a big thing for me. I didn't realize that was an option because, you know, we watch all these Disney movies and it's like, oh, I'm pining after this prince. I'll do anything, you know, to be with him. And for her, it was like, he had to chase her. That was like really big for me. So it was like, I can be wanted for who I am I don't have to change who I am or like fit into this mold of like the princess figure or this box and I can still be like wanted and I think that was like something that kind of brought to light a lot of new feelings for me I I wouldn't have interpreted this story in quite that way of of a story of somebody who is firm and and their convictions and their beliefs and yet and still is wanted and appreciated for those things. Now, there's a lot 
that happens before that, before we're able to get to that realization. But nonetheless, it is that story. And I can imagine a young girl watching this before they even reach high school, seeing a character stand firmly in what they believe and who they are and still being loved, not despite that, but because of that is very, very powerful. I think there was a big shift around the 80s and the 90s of prioritizing strong female lead characters, because I think that was not really, I don't know, I wasn't there. So I can't really speak to like (laughs) all of film canon prior to that time or even during. But I, I feel like whenever I watch like a film documentary and they're talking about trends in media or, you know, things like that, there is a notable shift that happens around the 80s and especially the 90s. I think something also really cool about 10 Things I Hate About You and films like it around that time is that it features high school students as well. So it's like not only this 30 plus year old career woman being respected and appreciated for what she has to offer to the world, but somebody who, you know, is young and has their whole life ahead of them still being seen as worthy and whole. And there are tons of stereotypes and and thoughts about Kat as a character that maybe we'll parse through later on, but nonetheless, she understands and and validates her own self-worth. You actually sent me a really cool essay before we recorded the episode that that talks about these characters and the story and the context of like gender roles and expectations that are associated with those. I thought that that was really cool because what I learned is that it's a great departure in some ways at least from the original telling of Taming of the Shrew back in the 1500s. Gender of course was a very big part of that story. You know, it's all about these two sisters One of them is super conventionally attractive and sociable, and every guy seems to want to have something to do with them. And then there's the second sister that is very shrill, supposedly, you know, very standoffish, very combative. That's how she is interpreted and portrayed in the original version of the story. And it's not like they abandon the gender roles in 10 Things I Hate About You, but they do a lot of subverting and in a very 90s way, I think even looking at it now, we're able to sort of critique even how they handled it. But I wanted to talk to you, Emily, about how do you feel the film tackled gender roles, gender expectations? I'm specifically thinking about like the not like other girls trope mm-hmm. that is running all up and through this story and Kat's character particularly. It's interesting because there's a lot of discourse that happens now around that, but I think maybe in 1999, that trope was still very fresh and new than maybe we are now where we're a little bit beyond that. So talk to me about that. How do you feel about gender and, and specific tropes in the film? I will say, like, I definitely had a very different experience, you know, watching it now versus like watching it like as a kid. And I think one of the first things I picked up on was, you know, like you said, like the not like the other girls, you know, trope that we're seeing, or we also call it pick me girl, because she's completely selling herself on the fact that she's not like other girls. And in doing so, she's putting other women down to separate herself. She has to like make some sort of like distinction. You know, she puts down her sister at one point because she's like, 
oh, you're just so juvenile or like you're so obsessed with boys. Like, I don't understand you. Why can't you just be more like me? Screw the patriarchy. All these like big statements and her teacher calls her out on it. And it's so good. It's you got to like, talk about the teacher just a little bit because <laughs> they are in a lot of Mr. ways, Morgan. the voice of reason. <laughs> Mr. Morgan, I, I do think that they would be fired in any other context. In reality, they did some things as well that I'm like, I don't know if I approve of that. But they did say some things that I feel like the audience is is feeling when Kat sort of gets into her space of, I am woman, hear me roar. They kind right. of contest that a little bit and, and interrogate what her positionality is as some random white girl in a very affluent high school. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I took a couple notes when I was rewatching it right before this. And she's like, the very beginning in English, she's like, you know, Ernest Hemingway, you know, he was, he was all about the patriarchy. What about Sylvia Plath? What about Charlotte Bronte? I guess society sees being male in an asshole makes you like worth our time. I know this is like silly. I'm going on and on, but like then he comes in and he's like, Oh, I'm sure you faced a lot of oppression in your upper middle class suburban right. household. And like the next time you want to come after the PTA, <laughs> you know? So yeah, like just kind of challenging her, her perspective, which I think is excellent. Like she's in high school and I think overall, I think it's a, a larger theme within the movie for her character is like, you're this person who is so sure of who she is and also who she isn't by virtue of comparing herself to her sister and all the other girls at school. But she's also so very young and there's so much room to grow and expand your perspective. And I, I think I can certainly relate to being in high school and thinking like, I know just about everything. Like I'll maybe learn one or two new things, but like I've got life handled and you'll meet figures like Mr. Morgan that thankfully challenge you and, and give you a new perspective, a new way of thinking about the world around you. Mm -hmm. I, I was wondering too, not to segue too much from, from this particular conversation, we can get back to it. But for you, do you feel like you can recall any figures from, from growing up that really challenged your your sense of self in a positive way and, and made you think about things a little bit differently yeah I think you bring up a really good point you know about kind of being in this little bubble you know in high school and you think you have it all figured out like you said um I think for me I had some teachers you know that tried to open up our eyes to the the world and I think there were certain things that they tried to do but at the same time like I grew up in a really conservative you know small rural town in the middle of nowhere so it's a little different and I think my parents like you know they did their best but you can only teach your kids so much when there's only 12,000 people in your town it's like two hours away to the next big city so you don't really get an idea of like what else is like out there or you know kind of like what challenges the world faces you hear things but it isn't until you see it and really like engage with other people who are different than you, or you kind of hear people of different ideas from you that you really get challenged. I, I feel like I didn't really get that, I don't think, until college. And that was really my wake up call. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a slightly bigger city. And so I, I was, it was a bit more diverse and you're, you have a lot more perspectives around you. But I would agree. I think coming to Los Angeles after high school, it was 
a culture shock for sure, a positive one. I think I met so many more people and heard so many more perspectives. So it, it's something that if you're open to embracing, it mm-hmm. can be very good. By the end, you you see that Kat as a character is a bit more open, just a little bit, to hearing other perspectives and and maybe realizing that there are some similarities even between her and other girls and other people at her school, other people in the world. And, and that is okay. It's okay mm-hmm. to identify with people. I, I think especially with her sister, she she comes to a peace with her and, and recognizes that like, okay, for example, my sister prioritizes relationships, not just romantic, but also platonic. Like this is something that she values. And I think she comes to realize at the end, maybe I value it too, in a, in a different way, perhaps, but like, it's also worth cherishing and fostering. No, I, I completely agree. And I think that like made me think of something that you also bring up is the fact that like they're young and there's a lot of things Kat does that are hypocritical to who she is, like who she claims, like she is like this rebellious person. But, you know, when Mr. Morgan says like, leave my class, she's supposed to be rebellious. She's supposed to be anti the man but she still gets up and leaves. She listens. And so like, there are things that like, you know, she still obviously still respects her father. She still respects like some sense of authority in, you know, male figures. And except when it comes to her peers, she can kind of reject their sense of authority. I thought that was something that maybe we can like get into a little bit later that I think also kind of ties into like the fact that like you're young, you may say one thing and then do another And I think that also is a big thing for me and like for us is like learning that we are going to make mistakes and we're going to change our minds and we're going to eventually figure it out because it's just all part of growing. And I think that might be another good takeaway from the movie as well. Yeah, we say talk about it later, but I think this is a great (laughs) place to talk about it because I I Knowing you, when you chose this film, and specifically the way that you resonate with Kat's character, I I had to imagine that a part of that was the reluctance to appeal to authority. And, you know, you have your own way of doing things. And it's something that I admire so much about you. But I can imagine, too, it may get you into trouble, especially as you're growing and learning. You realize, okay, well, Maybe I stood up to this authority figure, but in retrospect, I believe maybe they were a little bit correct. Just little things like that. Talk to me about how you started to come into yourself now in your early 20s and just that theme of authority and how you challenge that and also come to understand it in some ways. I mean, I think like the characters in the movie, I'm still doing things, (laughs) you know, like probably like we're both doing. We're just trying to figure it Mm -hmm. out. I am relatively impulsive so (laughs) I tend to get myself into and I've got a I've got a quick tongue so (laughs) I I have a tendency for picking fights with sometimes the wrong people sometimes the right people I think one thing I've learned though is like I've been trying to get better listening so (laughs) you know listening to the other side before I, I like butt in and I'm I'm like coming back at them with like three different points I think my debate tactics and my rejection of authority has both um, gone worse and better at the same time. Like, I think I've gotten a lot better at how I do it, but I'm I'm still doing it. <laughs> how about yourself? It, well, 
I, I heard your question as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have to agree, though. I feel that you, as I've seen you even just in these few years grow as a person, you haven't, you know, stepped down from challenging authority. I think you continue to do so, but you've gained a, a greater discernment for like when those battles are worth fighting and when it's maybe time to sort of put down your sword and, and just accept what is. And I think that's really healthy and you're still sort of on that journey. I think I am the exact opposite. I think that I grew up in a a space where it was like, no, these, these are the rules. And I think I just internalized really young that this is the way that things are done. And if you want to be happy and successful in this home, you follow these rules. And when you go to school, you follow their rules. When you go to people's houses, you follow those rules. It wasn't really my place, I felt, to challenge Mm -hmm. that authority. So I I think now as I'm getting a bit older and have more autonomy, the right to make my own choices, I I do struggle with making some of these decisions on my own because I'm like, who do I turn to? Who just tells me what to do? Like, come Mm -hmm. on now. Where's the teacher? Where's the parent? Something needs to enforce boundaries or, or policies or something. And so on my end, I'm like, I, I guess I'm in a lot of ways the authority over my own life. And scary. It's scary. Very. And I'm just like, maybe I can look to myself as my own authority figure if if I need to look at it through that framework. But it, it's interesting. I feel like both of us are coming from it from different perspectives, but we're both learning how to engage with authority in more healthy ways and I think it's cool that we see that through Kat as a character Mm -hmm. as well. And she still has a lot of way to go, but it's nice to see her slight evolution over an hour and a half. Circling back a bit to gender roles, gender expectations, gender pairings in 10 Things I Hate About You, this movie diverges a lot in the way that the characters, especially the female characters, are represented and allowed to express themselves relative to the 1500s story. Nonetheless, though, I think one of the glaring similarities between the two works is that all of the pairings are heterosexual. That's fine. You know, I, no, I, I saw some thumbs down from Emily, my bad. It's not <laughs> fine. It's actually awful. Um, I mean, look, it's A part of our world, the majority of folks are heterosexual. I've come to accept it to some degree. It's something I noticed, though, that, you know, this this movie that is supposedly a modern retelling of this very antiquated story is still very formulaic in in other ways, like the way that there's really only male-female love stories being told here, at least in the, the main text. But I I invite you, Emily, to talk about some of your musings about that. Like, how do you feel about the lack of queer characters? You said you still were able to see yourself in the story. So where does that show up for you, despite not being able to literally see a, a queer couple being represented? I mean, I will say, like, I watched this way, way, way before I realized I was queer at all. I just liked it, you know, but going back and like watching it or like just thinking about it now that I'm in my early 20s I think there's a lot of things that I look at I'm like hmm 
you are a little queer coded the way you're written in like Kat's character. Her character, like A, she plays soccer, which as someone who played soccer, I can just tell you it's an inherently queer sport. <laughs> and, you know, she's obsessed with Angry Girl Rock. The first first song that she's playing when it comes when she's like driving up next to these other girls I can't put my finger on it but it goes like I don't give a damn about my reputation oh that's it Joan Jett and you know she's going in there and and another point where we see her like love for music is she goes to this bar the bar is predominantly women we're like is this is this a queer bar like where are you and Patrick says something about like, oh, well, it's no bikini girl. Bikini girl is like, you know, pretty popular with the queer women. So mm-hmm. in my mind, like now I'm like, hmm, you dress pretty queer too. And you also hate men. And I'm not saying like all those things are like synonymous with like being a queer woman. Obviously, like there's a broad spectrum to like what that can look like, but they are things that queer people could potentially relate to. and that I found myself relating to. I, I like what you were saying. And I I also, I, I wonder what it says that she's sort of queer coded in a lot of ways and in, in the music that she likes and the books that she reads and the company that she keeps. And that seems to be a part of why she's so unattainable or, or why folks sort of keep their distance from her. I don't know. Do you read that as like a negative quality or aspect to her character? Or is it more of a just a representation of what it feels like to be a queer person, you know, to be ostracized and sort of othered mm-hmm. in the way that Kat is? What do you feel? I, I didn't really think about it from that perspective, but you could bring up a good point about like being othered. For me, like in at least my experience, I don't know, I'd like to hear yours. But in high school, you know, like I was like, labeled you know the grade a bitch because you know i was so focused on academics and i was just known that like emily doesn't date and like for me like that wasn't because i was queer as i didn't even know at that point it was more just because like i was told like i couldn't date i also thought like no one really i guess wanted i don't that sounds depressing but <laughs> there was no one that was really i had i was interested in for if like we're really getting into it and i think like that in itself is appealing to me i don't know if it's like maybe i'm attracted to those kind of women so i don't know if it's like you know like the the never-ending trope of like do i like her or do i want to be her (laughs) you know usually it's something in between i find right right but yeah no tell me more about like i want to hear everyone's dying to know what was jalen's trope you know they talk about all these tropes yeah no i i think this kind of leads me into a, a, a topic that i find really interesting about this film and i i think it's inspired the way that the director for 10 things i hate about you adapted this very theatrical work and and put it into a setting that is all about performance. I mean, I guess society at large is a huge performance, but I think high school is where a lot of us learn and and sort of craft our first social identities. Mm -hmm. And so I say all that to say Skating I was around also, the issue. <laughs> yeah, no, I, like, I will get to me, I promise. <laughs> I was also a, a young gay that was not dating. Uh, my mom was very 
firmly like no dating until you're grown and can make your own decisions, which for me, I don't know if I put into words that I was gay, but I knew that some wasn't straight about me for sure. And so <laughs> oh, like yeah, we know <laughs> I haven't even came out to you yet, to be clear. Uh, no, I, I am gay. It's true. And I kind of used that boundary that my mother set as really a way to be like, yeah, I just don't date. It's not that I'm gay or straight or anything. It's just that that's not something I'm allowed to do. So I did become similarly like that straight A student that focused squarely on academics, had friends, but it wasn't really a thing that I engaged with outside of school. It was mostly just friends that I studied with or that I was in speech and debate or mock trial with. Very limited range of social relationships, platonic or especially romantic. Did lots of fantasizing and longing from across the classroom or across the lunchroom. That was that was who I was in high school for sure. You know, now that we're kind of getting to fantasizing, you know, I I do really want to get to know like what was your favorite like romantic moment from this movie? Like I'll tell you mine, don't worry. My favorite was like when they're playing paintball. They're like chasing after each other. You know, she hits him, he hits her, and then he falls on top of her, and then they make out. And I know you know which one I was gonna say, but that's that was too obvious. <laughs> that might be mine. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's still good. It's still good. But like, I loved that moment. I was like, oh. I I love that scene as well, and. As you were talking about it, what it made me think of is like the blending of two colors and you assume off the bat that they're going to be very contradictory colors and they won't blend together. And mm -hmm. I like that at the end of that scene, they're super covered in paint and it's very gross and they're in the hay and it's getting on them. But nonetheless, they, they end the scene with a kiss. And it's like, despite how chaotic and incompatible it may seem to the outsider, these two quote unquote unlovable people have found room to love each other. And it's just like, ah, I, I love that scene. And um, I think I also really like the scene where they're like doing the boat thing where they're like oh. paddling in the cute little swan boat. I, I, I love that scene as well. <laughs> That's also a really good one. And also, I just want to say, I don't think I could have analyzed that better. That was so poetic. Like, the way that, like, two colors blending together. Like, I just love it. You know, I just thought about that. And, and I wasn't the first one to think about that, I'm sure. But uh, I was like, wow, the paint thing was significant there, I feel. But call me cliche, my favorite romantic moment in 10 Things I Hate About You is when Patrick creates this elaborate apology to Kat after they have their first fight and they sing, goodness, what is that song called? Is can't it I Love You, Baby? Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. <laughs> yes, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. He gets the band involved. <laughs> yes, oh, goodness. I think both high school Jalen and also adult Jalen can never get enough of a romantic gesture, especially one on that scale. That's just something that I've always wanted on some level. And maybe it's these movies that sort of bred that desire in me of just like wanting someone to show up for me in such an unquestionable, performative way and, and not having it be questioned or interrogated. 
by the end of that scene, regardless of, frankly, the manipulation and, and the confusion that happens within the plot, you know that there is genuine love and affection for Cat that Patrick has. And oh, it means so much to me. And if somebody serenaded me in that way, I'm sorry to say we just have to get married on the spot. I, I completely agree. I'm truly a hopeless romantic. And, you know, I re regret saying that people are going to listen to this and <laughs> I will likely get made fun of for it. But that is to say, like, there's nothing quite like, you know, a romantic gesture or like little things, you know, that amount to big things. And the romantic gesture, like you said, like, it, it's like painted this idea. It's like set my expectations so high. How can you top that? Like, I expect you to bring the entire band if if like we're getting married you better i don't know recreate like a scene from twilight or something i don't know why that came to my head but <laughs> but it's truly the least you can do i feel and um as we're talking about this i found a good way to loop it back to just speaking about our queer identities and how we were able to see ourselves in this movie because i think while a romantic gesture on that scale is pretty rare for anybody, I think just the idea of being affectionate and, and being so explicitly cared for and appreciated by a romantic partner is something that I'd argue is not afforded to as many queer people as straight people. And, and that comes down to a matter of safety and security in a lot of ways, right? Like, mm -hmm. I would love to have a partner that dotes on me and, and loves on me in public but like sometimes that's dangerous and um that's not to knock on this movie I, I think this is an excellent display of love and affection and i will continue to watch it for the rest of my life but it, it just makes you think right maybe that's part of why we resonate with these scenes so much and why we fixate on them in a way that maybe other viewers don't because we so badly want to be able to display our, our love for our partners and the people that we care about. You bring up a really good point because I think relating it to my own personal experiences, like I'm sure like in your relationships, like being out in public, it took me a while to like be okay with like showing affection in public because I mean, obviously we're very fortunate to live in a very accepting place, you know, like Los Angeles, but at the same time, like it is scary because those people still are out there, you know, like the people who like could hurt me or someone I care deeply for and so I think like it kind of adds into like that aspect of fantasy and like kind of like ties into like how we have a tendency to fantasize and it's like maybe part of that is not only the fact that we want to see that in our relationships but also that we want to see it but we can't and so I think you tied it in really well. A theme that maybe relates to all of this in a, in a roundabout way is like this idea of caring about what people or society at large has to say about you, has to say about the things or the people that you care about. I think this movie has a very firm stance on like not caring so much on, about what people think, but it, it makes you think about it a lot. Is it an overtly bad thing to care about what people think? Is it a good thing? Is there something in the middle? I want to ask you, how have you evolved, similar to how Kat's character evolved in that sense as well, how has your perspective on caring what people have to say about you yeah. changed over time? I will say, unfortunately, I'm a chronic people pleaser, so 
I'm probably not the best person to ask about that. But at the same time, like, I kind of feel like in an ideal world, I want it to be like a sense of like moderation, thinking what people think about you, like, or, you know, contemplating it or taking that into consideration. It isn't necessarily an entirely bad thing because oftentimes it's about thinking about the ways that like you can be more considerate or you can take their needs into account. But at the same time, it can also be the negative where you're kind of obsessing about it. It can lead to like a cycle of like worry or anxiety where you're finding yourself constantly thinking about it. You kind of lose your own sense of self. That's the opposite extreme of it. So I think in an ideal world, we'd have a bit of both. But you know, situations arise and all logic goes out the window. (laughs) I I feel like I agree with you, at least for most of that, I think. Well, I feel that media, Mm -hmm. especially Western media, is very individual centric, right? So a lot of the messaging is don't give a fuck about what people think. It's not worth your time. And I feel like I largely believe that. Not sure how much of that is sourced for my own internal beliefs and how much of that is just projected onto me. But I I mostly believe that, though I I would agree with you that as you get older, you're you're able to sort of realize and, and take into consideration the things that people that you trust and that you care about and that love you. You're able to take those things into proper consideration and genuinely care about what they think. And that being said, you're able to sort of toss out the things that some random naysayer across the street is feeling about you. That has nothing to do with you. But I think when I was in high school, these kids age, it was very easy to internalize all things, especially the more negative Mm -hmm. comments about what I look like or my sexuality or how I presented myself, any number of things. I really appreciate that. I'd say Kat the most, of course, but all the characters to some degree learn that it's okay to evolve and change and consider how other people are perceiving you. It just depends on who those people are. And you should never change yourself completely. But it's okay to sort of soften to things like love and companionship when it feels right. Mm -hmm. And I think that like brings up a really good segue tying into that is like as a result of the constantly having to like deal with like the things that people say about you, like the people, things that like people, you know, think about you, you sometimes develop a sense of anger or like sadness or like it manifests like differently for different people. One thing that I was thinking about for Kat and it might not be exactly related, but like her mom left and to a certain degree, like she has a lot of like displaced like anger which she kind of expresses through her opinions and things like that that can be said for all of the characters because you know we learn a little bit about patrick and why he was you know gone for a year they make up all these stories about like i heard he ate a live duck i heard you know he's missing a liver when in actuality he was was just taking care of like his sick grandma i think every character has these assumptions made about them and i I guess it kind of ties into a bit of a, you know, cliche statement, but I think to a certain degree, we can kind of take away that you try to look at people from like a holistic perspective. And I think that's something Mm -hmm. that I've been learning both now in my, my older, I'm I'm my wiser years. I say now in my Uh early twenties, I'm not wiser at all. (laughs) (laughs) But I I have to say that once again, I, I can't deny what you're saying. I think you're right. I 
like that this story takes the previous iteration of it, Taming of the Shrew, which is chock full of archetypes and, and basic stereotypes about characters, and doesn't do away with that completely. It's still mm-hmm. very much a story about these archetypal figures interacting with each other and evolving as a result of that. But I think it's that allowance to change and to open up to thinking differently that makes it, a, in my opinion, a more enjoyable piece mm-hmm. of work. Now, like I said, I haven't delved too much into Taming of the Shrew, so don't kill me if, if that's your favorite piece of work. But I, I think it means something that the modern interpretation of this story allows us to dig a little bit deeper into all of the characters and challenge some of the stereotypes that they have against them. Because it makes us look inward and see where maybe we have stereotypes placed on us that we can challenge ourselves. Mm-hmm. Pretty dope. This movie is, like we talked about a little bit earlier, it's like it's so performative in the way that like the beginning they're introducing like the cowboys, the hippies who think they're black and stoners. And then, oh God. <laughs> and then, you know, there's yes. the virgins, the bad boy. And I think it, it is kind of ridiculous, you know, for people to be placed in these boxes. But in a way, I think it's almost satirical in the way that it's like, guys, look. The bad boy has feelings. It's almost comical. Like you gotta admit a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that they they do it really well, you know, having mm-hmm. these very overt, basic stereotypes of these characters and saying, like, oh my goodness, Kat actually has the capacity to love. And it's like, duh, we know this. We we are aware that most normal people have some capacity to let love and care into their hearts, but painting it in such a theatrical way, I think, allows us to have more fun with it. And the payoff for realizing that these are actually very layered characters is more gratifying for me as a viewer. All right. Well, as we're coming to a bit of a close on on the movie discussion of it all, I want us to take this last few minutes to reflect on where we're at now as adults. You know, we're no longer in high school. And I think when we were growing up, we most resonated with the characters that were in high school, just naturally. Um, And maybe we still do to some extent. But there's also several very entertaining and interesting multifaceted adult characters that appear in the film. So how do you maybe see yourself in any way in these adult characters? Or even if you don't see yourself in them, what do you come to appreciate about them? And what, if any, qualities are you looking to adopt as your adult form? (laughs) This is something that definitely made me chuckle watching it through, you know, now as an adult. I think all of the adult characters, not I don't think I can think of a single one that's not a bit absurd. You know, we've got um, their teacher, Mr. Morgan. He's hilarious, like an icon. He's my role model. Honestly, I think he's the one I want to be when I grow up one day. And then we have Miss Perky. We can't forget about Miss Perky. She's the counselor and she's writing smut away. I think maybe we could almost talk about these people as like the four horsemen. You know, we've got Mr. Morgan, our idol. Miss Perky, she's, you know, the crazy cat lady. She might not have any kids, probably says way too many bad words and reads way too much smut. We've got um, soccer coach, little creepy, 
And the only thing I know about him is that Cat flashed him and I got severe secondhand embarrassment. And I was like, this is wrong in so many different ways. I know we're all adults in real life, but like, no. <laughs> and then we've got the dad, of course. He's hilarious. A little ridiculous, you know, a little dramatic. But you know, I love a good flair for the, I have a good flair for the dramatic. You know, if I was worried about my child be, getting pregnant, Maybe I would make them wear the pregnancy belly around sometimes <laughs> to contemplate their life choices. Like, it, it's a little cruel and absurd. But I think there's bits and pieces that I could see, you know, myself in each of these adult characters. They're very much, like, far removed, I think, because the proximity to the 90s and then also, like, I think I relate more the younger characters in high school just because I think I still am a child. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. I'm 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 like a baby adult. So maybe in like 20 years we can have another conversation when I'm alone with my like 30 cats. Sounds depressing, but we'll see. Sure. Retrospection 2.0, 20 years from now, we will circle back to each of these episodes and we'll be like, okay, now that we're like balding and shit. How do we feel about it now? So I'm, I'm very curious to see what your perspective on this movie is. Thank you so much, Emily, for your excellent contribution to this episode of Retrospection Connection. I appreciate you endlessly. I have had an excellent uh, conversation here with you about 10 Things I Hate About You, which I feel like was a movie that I always knew, like it was always in the zeitgeist, but I, I never gave a full watch up until maybe last year. Isn't this a full circle moment for you? Yes. Yeah. So actually this time last year, maybe a little bit earlier, I went and watched this movie on campus and I was going alone and I was very nervous, but I, I went anyway and I ended up meeting these two really lovely people in line. And we just naturally started talking about podcasts and some of our favorites and also just the possibility of ever having something of our own where we create our own podcast and share our thoughts. And I think that was the first time that I ever took that idea more seriously and had people around me that were like, oh, yeah, like you certainly got the voice for it. Like little things like that really keep me going. And yeah, this movie does actually hold a very special place in my heart. Thank you for acknowledging that. I'm glad. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun and hopefully I'll come back for round two. Just kidding. No, I will. I will. I, I love having you here. And we talked about quite a few different projects that you were considering maybe talking about for this episode. So where there's a will, there's a way. And there's certainly a will on my part. With that being said, we are going to head right into ad break. So stay tuned. All right. Welcome back to Retrospection Connection. Like I said, we are heading right into ad break. Emily, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Question one. How has your taste in media evolved over time? And do you see any through lines between your current taste and that of your younger self? I think I definitely see a lot of through lines between my taste in the past and my taste now. It has evolved. It's become a little bit more adult. You know, I still 
I still love a female protagonist. I have found a greater appreciation for, you know, a lot of like suspenseful. So like Killing Eve, I don't know if you've seen that. That's one of my new favorites. Another like drama comedy is like The Secret Life of College Girls. It was hilarious. So I think a lot of that, it's kind of like my taste has kind of grown up a little bit. Things that I find funny are quite different, but I still like shows in which like you still see a lot of like strong female characters. And I'm not sure if like that's partially because they're really hot and Renee Rapp. <laughs> <laughs> or if it's, you know, simply the fact that like I admire them and I see them as role models. And, you know, I really like to see their growth and maybe I see myself growing in that way too why not both you can see yourself in them and also see yourself in them in another way if if you don't you don't mind me being a little bit suggestive there (laughs) moving along question two what would you say is the theme song to your life currently you know i was gonna say a much simpler song but Honestly, I think I have to, it's cliche, but I have to go with the classic. It's Oops, I Did It Again by Britney Spears. Uh, Every once in a while, you have a moment with a friend where you realize why you are friends. And this is one of them because I have a personal thought about this. Two of Britney Spears' most popular songs are Oops, I Did It Again and Hit Me Baby One More Time. And I feel like those two songs are always pinned against each other as like, you know, two of her earlier songs and like two of her earliest big hits. And a lot of people are, you know, by virtue of it being her opening number, Hit Me Baby One More Time is like their favorite. But I've been just always more partial to Oops, I Did It Again. So I, I love that that shout out. Give us a little bit uh, as to why this song is the theme song to your life. I think it's just... You know, A, it's kind of a funny theme throughout the song. And I think also, you know, it's a fun, upbeat, it's Britney. Like, it's Britney, bitch. But I think also, like, like I know it sounds cliche, but, like, for as many decisions that I make are good, I make just as about as many decisions that are bad. <laughs> and may have seemed great in the moment, but as, as time evolves, I learn from my mistakes, but don't we all so i think when you repeat your mistakes it becomes oops i did it again (laughs) well look all we can hope for is that we can recognize that oops we did it again and we try to make slight corrections here and there knowing you you are someone that does make mistakes like we all do but you usually are able to understand where you went wrong and you're willing genuinely to to be different and show up differently and I have no doubt that whatever is going on in your life right now you will triumph and you you won't make quite the exact same mistake again yeah I'd hope all right (laughs) last question are we ready Mm -hmm. bring it on okay what is something that you would tell your younger self what is that thing that quote that whatever that young Emily needs to hear from older Emily right now I think young Emily would probably benefit from hearing like you don't need to be so hard on yourself. You know, like you can be kinder to you. Like you you've done a lot and like 
you know, I'm proud of you, you know, and I think that was something that younger Emily deserved to hear. And I think that's like something that like, I think everyone wants to hear, obviously, but like, they're doing enough and they're doing their best. I love that. I I think it would mean a lot in those moments when we're younger to hear that uh, affirmed by, you know, parents or teachers or other authority figures in life. But a lot of times we don't get that or it's not communicated to us in that way, like in the way that 13-year-old Emily or 13-year-old Jalen would really understand. Mm -hmm. And um, I know it's sometimes corny to like Mm -hmm. sort of, quote unquote, heal your inner child or address that younger version of yourself. But I absolutely think that there's a part of you inside that felt what you're saying right now and feels a bit of a hug from older Emily. And so I I don't know, I'm really glad and uh, thank you for indulging me with that question and taking it seriously. Yeah, it is a little corny and, you know, silly, but I think everyone just needs to embrace their inner child a little bit more and be more silly. <laughs> yeah, because it's still there. So so let's uh, let's have fun with it. That's how I feel. Thank you so, so much once again for being on Retrospection Connection, for making me revisit this film that secretly was maybe the origin of this whole podcast so I I appreciate you for that and also just for being the amazing friend that you are and I am glad that we've connected both over life and also through media which is one of my favorite ways to connect with people so thank you thank you so much I miss you can't wait to see you I can't wait to see you okay well I'll, I'll let you go but um yeah have a great rest of your night